I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People. If you're new to this podcast, let me just briefly explain what Gospel Wabi Sabi is all about. What I'm trying to do is to combine two things that are very important to me. First, the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Lord of all. So his life and teachings recorded for us in the books of the New Testament in the Christian Bible are central to this podcast. That's the basis for who I am and for everything my life is about. So I love to share what I've learned with you. And second, wabi-sabi, that's a Japanese expression. It's a way of finding beauty in imperfection. It's an awareness of the intrinsic value that others may not see. Think of the irregular shape of a moss-covered rocks from an old stone wall or the beauty of an old raggedy Bible that you've used for many years versus a new one right out of the box, kind of beat up and worn out, but beautiful to you because of the way you've used it over the years. Well, that's what wabi-sabi is, which I think perfectly describes how Jesus related to people. He treated people with wabi-sabi. He saw their value, people who were broken, who had rough edges, who were beat up by life and who were lost or seeking, who were anxious or afraid, they found a deep grace in Jesus. There was something transforming about just being with Jesus. His presence helped them see their value in God's eyes and changed them. So this podcast is pretty much a straightforward Bible study, but with a wabi-sabi twist. Good news for the imperfect. Now, wabi-sabi is different from a similar Japanese concept called kintsugi, which is an artistic way of repairing broken pottery with seams of gold. Kintsugi creates these beautiful, ornate, stunning-looking pieces of art from the broken shards of a piece of pottery. I would think kintsugi is a form of wabi-sabi, but you'd have to talk to an expert on things Japanese to get the, uh, the whole scoop on that. For this podcast, we're into our second episode on a series called Singing the Blues, where we're looking at one of the most ignored books of the Bible, Ecclesiastes. As I mentioned in the first episode, the word Ecclesiastes means teacher. And what he is teaching is about how God can become real in your life while living in a very confused and seemingly futile world. So this is season three, episode two, called One Man's Journey. And I'll be reading from chapter one, verses 12 through 18, if you want to turn there. So open your mind and your heart. Let God speak to you through his word. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. This may surprise you, but I believe in doubt. I believe there are times when it's important to doubt your faith in God. Does that sound like heresy to you? You might be thinking, Jeff, you were a pastor. You're supposed to be one of the good guys who stands for the truth, who's supposed to be rock solid about what you believe. 
supposed to help other people with their doubts. How can you say you believe in doubt? Well, when I say I believe in doubt, that doesn't mean I'm giving up on the Christian faith or deconstructing, as the popular word is today in some circles. Far from it. Because doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Doubt doesn't necessarily cancel out faith. To me, a healthy doubt is a subset of faith. In fact, I think healthy doubt actually works to strengthen a person's faith in God Because if you haven't had to really work through some things, some times of doubt or struggle in your relationship with God, then it's possible that your faith really isn't very deep. The process of working all the way through your doubts, walking all the way through your times of confusion, fighting your way through the ambiguities of life is what makes your relationship with Christ stronger and healthier in the end. The Greek philosopher Socrates is famous for saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I would say something similar about faith in Christ. An unexamined faith is not worth believing. The person who has never really thought it all through, who hasn't wrestled with tough issues, whose faith is just sort of on autopilot, they could be headed for a big tumble because when they hit some kind of crisis in their life, they're not prepared for the hard questions that come when you are in pain or when you experience deep disappointment. The Apostle Peter writes about the importance of an examined faith as he describes the hardships faced by first century Christians. He writes, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's 1 Peter 1, starting with verse 6. A genuine faith gets refined into something even more valuable when it goes through the fire. But doubt is uncomfortable. As human beings, we're unique among mammals in that we are totally dependent on others for the first few years of our lives. Most mammals are born and they're ready to take care of themselves after only a couple weeks or months, but not us. We were all completely dependent on our mothers at the beginning of life and for years after. We had to trust. We didn't have any choice. We have a similar initial dependence and trust in our relationship with God when we receive his gift of faith. We recognize that our salvation is completely God's work through Jesus. We are utterly dependent upon his grace. But that's why also a period of pain or suffering can be so devastating to a person's faith. If a Christian has never really explored their own faith with a healthy sense of doubt, then when trouble comes, it's as if the sun is eclipsed and they can't find their way. Theologian and cultural critic Os Guinness writes in his book, God in the Dark, writes that healthy doubt is not simply intellectual. It's not just an abstract philosophical or theological question. This kind of doubt is very personal. The question is simply this, can I trust God? How can I be sure? Or should I just go off on my own? And dealing with this kind of doubt is really the key to having a quiet heart, a peaceful mind, a non-anxious life. The world of faith in Christ is not a fairy tale. It's not a make-believe Disneyland where everything is problem-proof and question-free. In the real world, doubt is never far from faith's shoulder. But if ours is an examined faith, we can be unafraid to doubt. When our doubts get answered, our faith actually grows stronger. We know God more certainly, can enjoy God more deeply. Faith grows and then is able to sustain us through the next period of doubt. So faith is never doubt-free. Ecclesiastes, the teacher, he doubts. 
And this book is the record of his personal journey into and through doubt. Ecclesiastes is really a roadmap of his journey. His journey is not down some quiet country road with the birds singing and the sun shining through the trees. No, you have to imagine like a six-lane superhighway because beginning in this uh, passage and then continuing through chapter two, he goes fast through basically six express lanes that he's been traveling to try and find meaning for his life. And there are the six most common ways people still today try to find meaning and value and purpose and joy, even in our complicated day today. And he went after all six of them with the, all the energy he could muster. Today's scripture describes the first of those lanes, the first leg of his journey into doubt. He examines wisdom and wonders if wisdom is the way to find meaning in life. Now, even though the author of Ecclesiastes is never named, I'm pretty convinced it was King Solomon. Describes himself as king over Israel, as a son of David, and in my mind that pretty much narrows the field of possible authors down to one, which is Solomon. The book was probably edited later, which was true of much of the Old Testament. You can see that because someone who wasn't himself the teacher wrote the ending words for Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, starting with verse 9. It switches from the first person to the third person. So someone edited the final copy, I believe, under God's sovereign plan for Scripture. King Solomon was the son of King David, and so he had some pretty big sandals to fill when he ascended to the throne of Israel. The blessing and curse of his life was that his father was a great king. David had fought all the wars and had brought Israel to the place where it was the most influential nation in the region. All its enemies had been conquered. It was wealthy beyond belief. So Solomon got to just ride the wave of his father's success. Now Solomon ruled over Israel from approximately 970 to 928 BC. He had 42 years of total peace, prosperity, unlimited power. In some ways, Solomon had, to, had it too easy, and his heart started to wander from the Lord. And when you're that powerful and wealthy, it's easy to lose your sense of dependence upon God. Solomon had all the time and money and power he needed to do anything that he wanted to do. And unfortunately, that led him into some pretty dark places. He started off strong, in 1 Kings 3, chapter 4, or, or chapter 3, verse 4, we're told that God comes to him in a dream and says, Ask for whatever you want me to give to you. And Solomon very humbly asked for wisdom. He says, Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant here is among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? It says in verse 10, The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administrating justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then in 1 Kings 4.29 it goes on to say, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding and measureless as the sand on the seashore. 
Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East, and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than Haman and Kalkol and Darda, the sons of Mahol. I guess those were some famous wise guys back then. And his fame spread to all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. I mean, wisdom was what Solomon was known for. He was the premier theologian, philosopher, psychologist of his day, and he was a natural scientist who studied plants and animals and all the rest. I mean, if he were around today, he'd have, a, have an office wallpapered with Ph.D. diplomas all over the place. He'd have more degrees than Fahrenheit. So when the teacher writes in verse 12, I have devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven, he really means it. This intellectual quest has been his life's work, his primary passion. It's even his gift from God. He's the patron saint of wisdom uh, with 3,000 proverbs to his name. With all his wisdom, he dissected life to really understand how the, all the pieces fit together. He had invested everything into the study of wisdom. And that's what makes his next statement such a brutal slap in the face. It's all chasing after wind. That's what he says, chasing after wind. Can you imagine what a jolt this was to his students? He was looked up to as the epitome of a learned man, and now his conclusion is that it's all been a sham. It's like Bill Gates saying computers are a waste of time. He built up a whole industry around gaining all the wisdom of the world, and then it went bust. His wisdom, his knowledge failed him in the end. You know why? Well, it turns out that human beings are more than just a mind, more than just an intellect. Solomon forgot that he also had a soul, and he didn't have the will to follow his own advice. He was smart, no doubt about it. In his mind, he knew all the right answers. He just couldn't live his own life that way. It's like finding out that the president of the American Cancer Society is a smoker who can't quit smoking. Somebody who knows all the research, who knows all the facts, who knows all the risks, but who doesn't have the will to stop smoking. The teacher's mind was full, but it was his heart that got seduced. And we'll talk about specifics of that in the next chap in the next episode. There are two phrases that he uses in this passage that he repeats throughout the book. These phrases give us a clue as to where his journey is headed, what the final destination is going to be. The two phrases are under the sun and under the heavens. For the teacher, these two phrases actually describe two competing views of life, under the sun and under the heavens. Under the sun is the perspective that the universe we live in is a closed system, a black box. We're on the inside and there's nothing on the outside. In this universe, we are on our own. There is only what you can see in the physical world under the sun. It's the perspective of the secularist, the atheist, atheist or the agnostic, the person maybe who has lost their faith. If there is a God, he's outside the box, not involved in our daily affairs. That would be what deists also believe. There's a God who got it all started, who built the universe, but now he lets it run on its own with no direct intervention. So we're in a closed system of cause and effect. And if you can't test it in a laboratory, it doesn't exist. But when the teacher says under the heavens, 
He's taking the perspective that there is something above the sun, above what we can see on our own. Under the heavens means we don't live in a closed system, that the God who created the heavens and the sun and the earth does have his hands in our world, that there is a God who does intervene, who acts, who is aware of our plight and who does something about it. The teacher is wrestling between these two ways of looking at life because he concludes that apart from God's intervention, life is meaningless. What the teacher discovered is that wisdom might be able to help you put your finger on, a, on the problem, but it cannot straighten what, out, what is crooked in life. Wisdom alone can't really change reality. Wisdom is powerless to actually change the human heart. And so he's singing the blues. The pursuit of wisdom as a means of solving all the conundrums of this world has led the teacher to a dead end. He recognizes that wisdom alone doesn't lead people to God. It doesn't lead people to satisfaction. It's a wild goose chase where there is no goose. This kind of wisdom of intellectualism can become an idol, a false god that in our day is worshipped in the lecture halls and laboratories of our institutions of higher education. The teacher's message is that if someone is counting on finding their way through life through wisdom alone, that's a recipe for futility, for chasing after wind. Because under the sun, kind of wisdom can create new technologies and advanced medicines and all the rest, but it cannot solve the problems of the human heart. We have to look elsewhere for that. About 900 years after Solomon comes Jesus Christ, God who is above and sovereign over creation and yet who comes into creation as one of us, comes into this crooked, frustrating, fallen world. And Jesus says something amazing about Solomon's wisdom in Matthew 12, verse 42. He says, no one who is greater than Solomon, I mean, he says, now, excuse me, now one who is greater than Solomon is here. He references Solomon in this apocalyptic discourse he's giving when people wanted proof Jesus was the Messiah. But here's the point. Solomon knew the problem, but he couldn't fix it. He knew the world was filled with sin, but he couldn't forgive people's sin. He knew that people's lives were crooked, but his wisdom couldn't straighten them out. But Jesus can. Jesus came to right everything that sin has wrong and to answer all the frustrations that Solomon voices. Jesus came not just to give us more information, more insight about God, but to transform us by God's Spirit. That's what God's people, or that's what people miss if they think that Jesus was just another moral or spiritual teacher or some kind of philosopher. Jesus did not come to give us more wisdom about God. He came to change us from the inside out through his gracious love. There's more wisdom than Solomon knew, and it's found in Jesus. Sometimes the smartest people on the planet are the most confused. In the early 2000s, I started meeting with a man who had tried to commit suicide and had failed. Now, he was a brilliant guy. He was a tenured professor at one of the most prestigious universities in the New York, New Jersey area. In fact, he was head of his department. He was respected worldwide. He was top of his field. He had published more than 30 books in his field. Just this phenomenal intellect. And then he had an Ecclesiastes moment when he realized that everything he had taught, all of his academic theories, all his whole philosophy about life was pure bunk. All his books wrong, empty, chasing after wind. His life spiraled down. He went through a painful divorce. And so in a moment of despair, he tried to take his own life, but the gun went off prematurely and he shot himself in the leg. 
The bullet shattered his thigh bone, left him then with a painful limp and a painful struggle to go on living. As part of his physical therapy, when he got out of the hospital, he began walking. And in the neighborhoods, uh, in the afternoons, he would often walk by the, at the same time children were being released from an elementary school in his neighborhood. Now, the women who was the crossing guard by the school would always smile and kind of chat with him, try to be friendly with him. She saw that he was in pain physically, emotionally, sort of sensed that he was troubled. And she was a Christian, a member of the church that I served. And so one day she just got up her courage and decided to give him a Christian book. Nothing heavy, not some intellectual tome, not C.S. Lewis or Tim Keller or anything of that caliber. Just a very simple, I would say even simplistic book about faith in Christ. In fact, not a book that I would recommend to anybody. But that's what she felt she was supposed to give him. And he took it reluctantly, but he read it even more reluctantly. So here he is, this massive, massive intellect. And then he gave his life to Christ, just like that. And his whole world changed. The woman directed him to come and see me, and he and I met every week for almost a year. I've never met anyone with such an insatiable thirst to grow his faith. I'd say, okay, why don't we start with a book like C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity? And by the next week, he would have read and digested every single book C.S. Lewis had ever written. And I'm not kidding about that. He was so passionate about growing his faith because he wanted to get to the point where he could write again and try to undo the damage he felt he had done in all of his previous academic books. After our year together, he went on to get a new position at Oxford University in England. But here's the key. His journey into doubt, into meaninglessness, into chasing after the wind led him to Jesus, and he's a new person. It wasn't wisdom that was going to fix his life. Jesus changed his under-the-sun world, and he can do the same for you and for those that you care about. Have a great week.